Hey, pharmacy owners listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot. Been doing this for 11 plus years, and the independent pharmacy owner in the community, specialty, long term care sector of our healthcare industry are so important. You really feel pushed right now, pushed by the PBMs. There are pharmacies that have closed. This network takes a look at things that come out that could benefit the private pharmacy owner and provide you with additional benefits to your patients and to you. And there's a product called the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack. We heard about this product. We researched it. They have become a sponsor. We very much appreciate them. And you can do right with your patients while still making a higher profit on these products. The Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container all in one. With the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack, you're doing more for your patients and more for your pharmacy. You'll see consistently higher revenue and higher margins through this product. Take a look. UltiGuardSafePack.com forward slash podcast. Go to UltiGuardSafePack.com forward slash podcast. Research it and let us know what you think. And thank you so much for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Hey, not just in the vaccine rollout, which is prefaced in USA Today News out of Chicago, a report came that people of color have suffered most of COVID-19. And now that vaccines are here, they are far less likely to have received a forced first dose of many of this for this many of the same reasons. This is disturbing to me. I've been following uh, news um, on health disparities for some time. We have Transforming the Nation, which is a big part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network's focus on pharmacists changing inequality. And this was in a myriad of different topics. There was an article that really got me to concentrate and focus on today's topic, um, which was titled, Why an Overhaul of Paying for Your Healthcare is Long Overdue. And I'm joined today with the managing partner of Global Health for Finn Partners, Gil Bash. Gil and I, and I'm so honored to be in the same list as Gil, are listed as the top 40 um, health healthcare influencers for 2021 uh, with Medica. And I want to uh, give a shout out to Medica Life um, for their coverage of influencers. But an influencer of mine has been Gil in the way that he writes and how long he has been in the healthcare industry, starting out as a, he references that as a patient uh, from his uh, service and military days. But now as leading global health for Finn, he is an important voice in our United States healthcare system. Welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast, Gil. Todd, it's great to be with you and congratulations on your and Pharmacy Podcast Network's ranking with Medical Life. It's something that you uh, certainly have earned through your hard work in representing the health professional community and I wish you continued success on that level. It's a privilege to be with you and this is a topic I know we're both very passionate about. You you mentioned um, health, uh, um, health inequalities and I'll I'll shift that a little bit to health equity 
the you know the the sense that equity is different than equality. We don't all need the same thing, but we need something. We need access to care on the most important levels. People who really are at risk, and that risk is fundamental to food insecurity, to access to um, good health professionals, to guide them to ideally prevent illness. All of this is, um, is critical, critical to actually our improving the health of the nation, sustaining the health of the nation. COVID has brought out, as you mentioned, uh, beyond the vaccine, COVID has really brought out the, um, the built-in racism that exists within our system for, um, for decades upon decades, actually for hundreds of years within our system that has become so ingrained that we're, we're just not attuned to it any longer. And what it means is, is a, a population that has a heightened risk for heart disease and diabetes and, and cancer screening and a whole array of non-communicable illnesses that we need to get our arms around. So I'm thrilled to speak to you today. I'm thrilled to speak to the pharmacy community, especially. Um, let's give a, a sort of a, a tip of the hat to the pharmacists, the, the pharmacy techs out there who are listening today. They are on the front lines of care. And there's no doubt about it. One of the reasons we're having such an upheaval, uh, chaos, in gaining access to these vaccines. Now there are three approved for the United States. One of the reasons is that the pharmacy community, which traditionally is trained and mobilized to deal with vaccination, has not been effectively deployed to date. And that is actually hurting community health. So I'm eager to speak with you about these topics. Yeah, digging into that, Gil, and going back to the article that really brought us together this morning is, um, is the title, and I'm going to have this in the show notes, Why an Overhaul of Paying for Your Healthcare is Long Overdue. And it stated that the United States government's throwing everything, the kitchen sink, um, at COVID-19's national response. And doing so, there's so much urgency for the Food and Drug Administration to jump in and distribute and administer and get the vaccine where it needs to be. We've seen success in West Virginia with community pharmacy jumping in and getting um, nearly 90% of their uh, vaccine distributed. And then I contrast that to the article I referenced in USA Today, Angela Zayas. Angela Zayas, Ms. Zayas is the co-founder of the Grace and Peace Community Center. She turned her church into a food bank and also as a distribution point for the vaccine. And they did some studies uh, from uh, Grace and Peace, and they're in a zip code that is uh, 60639, which mm -hmm. is near Chicago. It has one of the highest COVID death rates in the city and one of the lowest vaccination rate and vaccination rates. In comparison to the rest of the state, it's only 4% of their resident is getting uh, the COVID vaccine versus other uh, sectors, which are over 70%. And it just makes me think, you know, that, as you said before we started recording, that is a magnifying glass, a screaming red light that is blaring, and it should be blaring in our ears and in our eyes and, and really saying, you know, why is this? Why is this happening? How do we stop this? Yeah. So, um, look, COVID is, has really shined the spotlight on these issues. These issues, as I said earlier, they've existed for, for decades and decades. 
Uh, now we're just seeing it because the numbers, our ability to aggregate numbers and look at it on a, on a regional and national level. But if we look at diabetes or heart disease, we saw the same things then. But we cannot be immune to the tragedy that faces our, our fellow citizens. And actually, I'm, I'm going to be more pointed about it, Todd. A prosperous nation will no longer be prosperous if a large community, a large section of its population become impoverished, impoverished because of COVID, impoverished because of disease. So it's in our mutual self-interest, first of all, to deal with these public health urgencies. The, the fact is that America dedicates $3 trillion annually right. to health, $3 trillion annually to health. The bulk of that money isn't going to care. According to a Kaiser, um, a Kaiser Foundation report that I saw just these, the past day or two, the, the reality is the, a large chunk of that budget is going to administrative waste. And that is a concern. So I, I just want to deal with some of the frontline issues that you've brought up about that community, for instance. People need different things. There is no sense of one program fits all. Right. And so it's not as if our state health officials, and we have 51 health systems in the United States. So each state has a commissioner of health or a director of health. It has its own statewide health system. And then we have a federal health system on top of that with different federal agencies, FDA, CMS, of course, HHS overseeing that. But within the states, believe it or not, each, each county has usually some form of health system. So we go from grass tops to grass roots pretty quickly. It's not like we don't have visibility of what's going on on a grassroots basis of people suffering. People are suffering, but they're suffering from many different conditions where we have inexpensive, readily accessible therapies and medical devices to help engage. There is little reason why payers are pushing back in many cases on certain therapies approved by the Food and Drug Administration, approved for access to our US veterans by the Veterans Administration, approved under CMS, Medicare and Medicaid regs, and yet our private payer system has other committees that determine whether these medications or devices will be made available to their constituents, to their customers, their beneficiaries. The fact that each committee makes a decision and we are clueless often of what those criteria are, there are no national criteria set for payers. Mm -hmm. And we do see in many cases that the the community of medical device organizations led by AdvaMed are, are, are dealing with the health insurance lobbyists um, in Washington over access to medical devices. Can you imagine today, they are available, thank God, but can you imagine today if people with diabetes had to fight to gain access to diabetes blood glucose meters? We would, we would have an epidemic of of huge, huge, huge national policy concern. And still, as you said when we were talking earlier, there's now a bipartisan bill coming through the House that will look at obviously making sure that people with diabetes have fair and equitable access to insulin. The fact that we're having, we're having this conversation 
in 2021 about access to insulin, which was, I believe, invented in, was it 1930s? We first came out with insulin, and that was included in the Social Security Act of um, 1947, right? That insulin would be available under under Medicare. It's one of the required medications. The fact that pharmacists and patients have to have this as a discussion point in Congress um, was this um, 90 years after the fact is of grave concern to uh, our public health policies, now our public health situation. It is, and and that's disturbing. And it it's it it. I did read this act. I I want to pull back. And on February twenty fourth, they released um, a house. They're calling it a bipartisan health care plan. I think anything and everything having to do with the national health care needs to be um, bipartisan. But they uh, stipulated and focused on the very first uh, item was insulin copay cap, capping insulin copay at fifty dollars for the. F- for a 30-day supply um, because of its uh, life-saving, um, obviously, issues. And, and then there, you're, you're tying other things back to that that um, kind of surround the family, um, and that is drug transparency and hospital cost transparency and um, ending the gag clause, which prohibits insurers from requiring a patient to pay a higher copay than the cost of the dispensed medication and, um, and banning the, uh, the middlemen, the, the PBM, for prohibiting a pharmacy from disclosing the current price of medication. What this teaches me, Gil, is there's no silver bullet. There isn't one issue. There's really, we need to find champions in, in each of these sectors, um, the right to shop, the right to go across state lines, um, a right to um, obtain insurance, um, the lowest cost insurance possible with the highest um, you know, value to a, to a family so that healthcare isn't crushing a family and putting uh, families into bankruptcy. And like you said, the, um, the pandemic has brought a tremendous amount of focus to this because so much has been accelerated. And I, I really have hope that this is going to shine light in areas of our healthcare system that need to be fixed immediately. Now, we have one of the most um, complex fragmented health systems in the world. You know, um, countries like Singapore have a three-tiered system. Everybody has health. Um, if you cannot afford health insurance, either by way of, of um, what's offered, you know, as the base insurance or added insurance, the government provides you with, with, um, with insurance. And it's not catastrophic insurance. It, it's, it's health insurance. And we're seeing this now, actually, in... in um, in countries, let's say uh, Germany, which actually uh, um, enables uh, reimbursement for physicians prescribing digital apps, digital health apps, for instance, they spend about 60% of what we spend in this country. They, their people enjoy a longer life expectancy than our people do. And, um, and they're spending less per capita, per individual. Now, we, we have to start asking ourselves the question, why are other people getting more services more access to care, um, spending less, and living longer, healthier. That these are all baseline questions that we're asking. Now, you, you brought up something that um, isn't discussed enough in our fragmented health system. A lot of the great changes of the of the U.S. health system, and it is a great health system. You know, we're we're, we're looking at its its um, complexities and the gaps, but. Much of the world's health innovation 
actually comes by way of the United States. Mm -hmm. So we are a nation of amazing innovation, but innovation that is not accessible to people right. is not helpful. And so that's the, that's the gap that we're having to deal with. So let, let's look at that when everybody would agree, Medicare and Medicaid, Medicare works. Can you imagine telling uh, the nation right now, we're, we're, we're gonna revisit Medicare? Uh, I think uh, any political party, any political party, would find itself out of Congress, out of out of out of uh, leadership pretty quickly. Um, you know, American Americans have said, "Don't touch Medicare. Improve it, yes, but don't touch it." Now, yeah. in 1964, when Lyndon Baines Johnson um, moved that into uh, law. It was he had a, um, a a majority in both the House and the Senate, and he moved on that. The first person to receive a Medicare card was actually Harry S. Truman, former President Harry S. Truman. It was uh, the the signing ceremony was at the Truman Library, and he and his wife Bess were together. He received card number one. She received card number two. He received the pen of which LBJ signed the um, the bill into law. Why? Because um, President Truman had been advocating for this sort of policy um, while he finished his presidency, I believe, um, at the end of the 40s, right? And then Eisenhower became president. So think about it. In the 50s, 40s and 50s, he had already been advocating for Medicare. It took another 15 years for it to become law. And then one party said it was really the dawn of communism in the United States. Now, today, we would all agree. We embrace Medicare as, as a social benefit of our society. My hope, first of all, is a, the Affordable Care Act that with, um, with a new administration in the White House will stop talking about repealing ACA and collectively will follow the footsteps that we did with Medicare and Medicaid we will work to improve it. We'll look at its inefficiencies. We'll look at patient populations that are underrepresented. We'll look to bring certain health professionals online to be better represented in implementing its policies. And by doing so, we'll actually make health care more equitable, not equal, equitable. Different people need different things, um, but all people need access to health. I do wanna talk a little bit about pharmacy for a moment. Because, you know, while we're talking about government policies, federal policy or state policy, um, policy is in your face at the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Make no mistake about that. Pharmacists are not only trained health professionals, they're trained on the medications, all the new medications that are coming out, contraindications, drug-to-drug -drug side effects, of course. They're, they're go-to um, sources of information. In many communities, pharmacists, in fact, are the frontline health professionals um, for, for members of that community. And also, with many pharmacies now having late hours, um, they're the place where a member of the community can walk in, go to the pharmacy counter, and ask a pharmacist a question of concern, whether it's a child who's not feeling well, or what medication should they take for a condition, or when should they see a doctor and realize the medication isn't working? But also, also pharmacists hear the hardship questions. I can't afford that drug. Yep. Is there something less expensive? My health plan doesn't cover that drug. What do I do now? So 
it's not enough to invent new medications. That's wonderful. Invention is incredible. It's not enough to invent them. The real issue that pharmacists connect us to is accessibility. If medications are not accessible, medications and devices are not accessible, they, they serve no purpose. Right. And so pharmacists really need to be brought into this conversation um, as frontline policy decision makers and implementers of health. Doctors know um, diagnosis and disease and possibilities of treatment. But the reality is, is the, is the patient taking that drug or not? Are they adhering? Do they understand what it does? That's the, the biggest lift falls on the shoulders of the pharmacist. I, I think that we're going to find if we start to really look at our data, that in fact, doctors are doing a great job as our nurses, our nurse practitioners, um, physician assistants, but pharmacists actually understand the realities in the home. We've got to bring that knowledge together. I think any policy that doesn't include um, pharmacists and the reality of people with health urgencies is, is actually just going to be another policy that doesn't have health, public health impact. The contrast on innovation versus fiscal sustainability is glaring, uh, Gil. And there was a report that was put together by um, Greg Gervan and Avic Roy, who uh, did a report for a, a national uh, research organization supported by uh, FreeOp. And they reported that the United States was ranked fourth in the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, only behind Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands. But they were ranked in the low bottom 30% for fiscal sustainability and the contrast of all of the countries involved was actually the worst, the contrast between that fiscal sustainability and healthcare innovation. So your point is absolutely correct that the United States, we are a leader and we are a leader in the world in healthcare. However, we fall way behind when it comes um, on how we're caring for our nation, our 300 million um, Americans. And there are so many out there, especially our uh, Black American population, Hispanic uh, American population in the areas where um, we have pharmacy deserts, which is a huge issue. Um, no, pharmacy, no pharmacies around for uh, that can be accessed by public transportation um, like in other areas. And, um, and, that is, and that is most of the time, Gil, because of pharmacists seeing their patients 10 to one, uh, 10 times more than what their primary care, that is a major issue. And that vaccine rollout is going to be impacted by that exact same um, statistic. Yeah, look, phar community pharmacies were set up. Uh, pharmacists were trained. Um, they were trained in, in delivering the flu vaccine, the shingles vaccine, other vaccines. Um, and they are very skilled in doing this. The, the issue with COVID-19 initially was the perception of uh, a supply chain management issue, which was refrigeration. And, and so community pharmacies were not set up per se with, um, with sufficient refrigeration capacity to be engaged at the level they want. Now that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been approved and it 
um, is a, a standard refrigeration vaccine. And now we're, that we're determining that the Pfizer vaccine might actually be stable in standard refrigeration for a longer period of time than expected. I think it's really time for us to take a look at the role community pharmacy, pharmacy chains, independent pharmacy will play in uh, a national rollout program. That we're developing these, what we'll call these mass inoculation centers, vaccine centers is, is wonderful, but the community-based system actually um, works quite well. Um, if if uh, President Biden's vision is to be successful then I think we have to bring all points of dissemination of the vaccine online as quickly as we can. And I'm certain that the pharmacy chains are, are eager to do that. I'm certain that community pharmacies, independent pharmacies are ready to do that as well. Um, and I think that this nation is, is on track. What we talked about before though, was the, the racial divide. And, right. and that, that is not just the challenge of community pharmacy. That is the, the, the challenge that we have to engage right now, which is really reaching out to the communities and providing them with the um, information that is needed. And, and we should not assume, this is about health equity. The information we provide pop, one population is not necessarily the same information we need to provide another. The science is the same, but sometimes people need greater insight, greater transparency. They need to see behind the curtain of how this happened. They may need to actually, community leaders may need to speak to the chief scientists at Pfizer and Moderna yep. and Johnson & Johnson to have that level of assurance that this is safe and effective with the emphasis on safety. Um, we, have, we have populations that are rightfully suspicious. Um, the, the, and it's not just everybody goes back to Tuskegee. Yes, that's a horrific chapter in this nation's history that needs to be discussed, by the way. We, the, the way to overcome or start to overcome racism is actually to own it, discuss right, right. it, understand its root causes, understand that the, the pain it has caused, physical and emotional for generations. Um, but more than that, it is, is to understand that sometimes we must lean in to that history and understand that people don't have intuitive trust for the system and for great reason and understand that they're correct in their hesitation. You know, to say, well, the science says, guess what? The science has not been very truthful to that population. And therefore the science is a responsibility to go out into the community and explain itself to the community. That's gonna be mission critical in making this work. So that's one component of it. That also, also involves the pharmacy chains, the yep. chief medical officers and chief pharmacy officers of the pharmacy chains. It involves a lot more grassroots outreach to make that successful. And those connections actually will serve us all well as we deal with some of the other health challenges this nation faces. Um, I, I do quickly want to go back to something we've been skirting around, which is access. And um, access to care is at different levels. Access to care means people have access to the, the healthcare professionals yep. who want to deliver good care. It also means they have access to products that can help them live better lives. The, the fact that um, we have a changing formulary system that is, for the most part, 
it's it certainly is price driven or cost driven or budget driven. We're not really sure, by the way, <laughs> what it is. Is it is it there's better products for this for 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 less cost? Is it we just don't want to add products to our formulary? Is it we got a better product for that product, so we're bouncing this product off? But I'll give you an example: non-medical switching. You get a whole population of millions of people stabilized on a drug. It could be a drug for arrhythmia, high, hyper, high, high blood pressure, diabetes, whatever. Right. And all of a sudden, they get a letter in their mail from their plan saying, we're not going to cover that drug any longer. Then you've got to move a whole patient population over to another drug. Well, that doesn't really help our adherence problem, right? People get into a behavioral rhythm. We forget that behavioral health is part of health. Every time we make a change to the system, we better say to ourselves, what are we putting in place to make sure that the patient gets exceptional care and doesn't get off the track of adhering to their physician's directions? They're not recommendations, they're directions. That's one. Two, often we forget different, we talk about health equity. Well, we're talking about often adult populations, pediatric populations, senior senior care. People at different age ages react differently to different drugs. Yep. And, and so often we, we, we set a blanket formulary and we realize children, for instance, children who may be on ADHD medications and have migraines may need other options to treat their migraines that are that are actually not pill, not medicines. Right. They need devices. Um, all of this is part of the mix of trying to get people to be healthier. Our plans actually have to recognize they are the for-profit public health network. And they need to actually sit back and say, what are we doing to up our game? on adherence? What are we doing to up our game on options? I think pharmacists, by the way, really have a big voice to play there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Lucas uh, Brennanbrook, and um, he's assistant professor of pharmacy and therapeutics at the University of Pittsburgh. He was part of a huge study that came out in um, late 2020, a white paper um, from, um, from the medical center and the college, uh, the university, which found that 69 uh, counties um, that, that were being uh, focused on that had uh, black Americans in those counties were missing ways to get people to treatment. That is uh, less transportation accessibility. And, um, and what was really interesting, they dug into Lee County, Georgia, for example, and it said that black Americans are 825%, that's 825% more likely to live more than 10 miles from a vaccination location than whites in that same county or in that same area in Madison County, um, Mississippi. It, it also figured that 976% um, were in the same uh, situation. And then, uh, and then in Alabama, there is a county called uh, Chilton, and they were 1,193% um, that they were further than 10 miles from a vaccination location. So there, therein lies uh, much of, uh, of, the, of the issues that it's, it's, um, it's a domino effect. And we can't expect 
the nation to be um, to be healthy, um, to be prosperous, to be able to restart an economy if we don't have people that are healthy um, doing it in 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 leading and in building families, building communities. So it's extremely cyclical. It's not just you know healthcare. If I'm a I'm gonna you know I, I love the economy. I love thinking of how the economy works and. Um, I, I, I believe in the free markets, but I also believe that if we don't care for um, Americans, all Americans, we're not going to we're not going to get to a place of, of prosperity again and being able to build um, healthy communities and prosperous, prosperous communities uh-huh. unless we get vaccinations. That's a Twitter card, Todd, that you should put out there for this, because I think you've nailed it. And it's more than just, by the way, medicines. Uh, you know, I think medicines are. Um, Look, they're, they're a last resort. Uh, the, you, what you've done is you've, you've kind of gotten to the heart of the issue, which is self-care instead of sick care. Our whole system discusses how to manage cost around sick care instead of how do we actually invest in people's self-care and wellness. So I, I want to give you an example. We're talking about building a healthy America. I'm, I'm privileged to be part of a group called the International Well-Building Institute, IWBI, with, uh, we've just launched a campaign with a number of celebrities, including um, um, Jennifer Lopez, Lady Gaga, um, uh, Serena Williams, um, Spike Lee, um, and others. Uh, quite a dramatic campaign. And we have to look at our buildings differently, for instance, in terms of their health aspects. We actually have to start to rank our buildings in terms of health equity. So when you go into a mall, um, we don't ask ourselves what percentage of foods or food stores in the food court are going to be dedicated toward nutrition, nutritious, healthy foods. Now, we, we have to start to build malls and say 30% of the, of the food offerings in the food court have to be healthy. Um, people go to malls in, 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 in certain climates where they could use the mall actually as a walking track. Um, that's important. So, you know, every, everything from, you know, air, food, um, exercise, we have to look at our buildings in the future that way. You know, historically, we went to work, we sat in a chair for hours, we got up, we stretched our backs, right? Oh, we stretched our backs, um, we maybe grabbed a coffee, a bite, and we went back to our desks to work. Um, standing desks aren't enough. So when we take a look at health, uh, or lack of health, we have to take a look at the root causes of illness. Um, lack of exercise, poor diet are two of the great reasons. Primary prevention are great. But, but there's something that was discussed. I, I will give a point of view um, out there. Uh, I saw a great picture yesterday on Twitter. It was two single dollars, a $5 bill, and two quarters. And said, and it said, how would you like to work one hour and get this at the end of the hour? And, and so what we have is we're telling essential workers, essential workers are, are, are told you're essential and impoverished. Um, th- there's, a, there's a paradox there. Right, and, right. and at $7.50, uh, I was speaking on a health equity uh, uh, webinar last week, and now we raise the issue, which is how can we build a healthier America beyond COVID-19 vaccination if people, if a four-person family doesn't have enough money to feed their family healthy foods? Yep. 
how will we eradicate non-communicable, I'll say this, unnecessary disease from people's households if we are essentially sentencing fellow citizens to be impoverished. It's not just the cycle, the economic cycle of poverty, it is the cycle of food insecurity, right. of homelessness. So, you know, the, the reason I think that pharmacists are, are so critical to this, like, like primary care physicians, is that they're embedded in their communities. They see the struggle. They see the struggle in these communities. They have to raise their voices. They have to not only enjoy the profession, they have to be a voice to raise the health standards of our nation. Um, health equity is about creating a sense of equity. Um, people need different things at different times, but people need have needs. Those needs must be focused on and addressed if we're actually we're going to build a healthier, stronger, more vibrant America. Absolutely. And I, I like the fact that you keep bringing it back to how it's going to impact the rest of the country. It's not just people that are in the lowest 10% of income. It's not the highest um, billionaire people that are, you know, in the top 1% of income. It's literally an, an, eco, an ecosystem of, of how this impacts everyone. And I think if, if, if we can think that way, um, we'll realize, wow, this, this isn't limiting us as individuals. It's not limiting us as uh, entrepreneurs um, like you and I both are at, at heart. It's giving us insight to the humanity of where we are. And the humanity of where we are is here in our country. Um, you're in, in New York, I'm in Pittsburgh. Um, uh, community pharmacies, 23,000 of our independently community pharmacies spread throughout the country. And those pharmacy owners see their community suffering. They see their community being impacted. And, it's, and they know it's both the wealthiest of their, of their clients and customers and patients, and it's also the poorest. And if we don't reach into that poorest sector, we're never going to grow. Or we're never going to level up as a, as a country um, which, in in my opinion, gives entrepreneurs um, and people that are wealthy a much better chance of uh, of increasing their their income and their wealth. So I don't I don't I don't understand why why there's many people out there that don't see that. Well, um, you know, we we live in a world of limitless possibilities, but our mindsets believe that our our prosperity is finite. So when people look at their, their households, their benefits, the, the blessings that have been bestowed upon them, they, they feel that that's very finite. And if, if I lean in and I give you some of what I have, there, there won't be enough for me in the future. And, and that's, I understand, a very bona fide fear. It's a very bona fide fear. But the, the reality is, that the most vibrant nations of the world generally find that there is some sense of equity between the, 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 the balance between the haves and the have-nots is closer together. 
And the, the more we see that this divide is growing wider and wider, that's where we start to have grave concerns. You know, I look at, for instance, the concern around our environment and the move, the move to um, clean, clean industries, clean energy, for instance. And um, I am reading right now Bill Gates's book. It's right here, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And, you know, he talks in the book about the fact that we have, you know, fortunately, we've got more than three decades to, to correct our course and get the planet's atmosphere, our environment back on track. Um, now, we, we can't disconnect the environment to our health. Mm -hmm. Our air quality, I, I, I think you would agree, Todd, our, our air quality will influence uh, cancers. It influences respiratory disease. It influences mental health. It influences cardiovascular disease. Certainly, all those things. But if we don't have clean water, if we don't have um, healthy soil to grow crops, if we don't have um, refreshing air in which to breathe, um, you know, obviously we're going to see another cascade of health issues that we're going to face around this country, around the world, probably, since we share we share air. Um, yes. That's that that that's a given. We share air. So you know, I bring up this at this time. COVID COVID nineteen um, is is a time of fear, of chaos, of confusion. It can be a time of concentration and focus. Right. It, we can come out of this period saying, "What have we learned?" You know, my hope most certainly is that we don't lose all of these tragic insights that as we, we move to universal vaccination, whether it's this year or the beginning of next year, as we move to herd immunity, we, we cannot say, let's go back to the way it was. That will be the disaster. That will be the shared disaster. What we have to do as a society is say, thank goodness we've been given another opportunity to engage in equitable care for all, regardless of race, religion, age group. We, we actually have to strengthen our community health system. We have to look at the role of private payers in collaboration with the public health system. Private payers actually have to leap up to the responsibility of understanding that aside from being publicly traded, very successful businesses, they are in fact now, because of the structure, our national public health arm. They need to work and act accordingly to that. That's very, very important. And also we have to understand that we have to return to some of the basics of the health system. That actually pharmacists, primary care physicians, which actually are becoming extinct, in many cases, New York Times had a great piece on that recently. Uh, it's an op-ed written by the president of Howard University, uh, who's a surgeon, wrote a great piece about what will happen if we don't have primary care. Well, I think that you could have swapped out the word um, pharmacy or pharmacist for primary care physicians, and you'll come to that same impact. Now is the time to strengthen the system and actually prepare to swing out of COVID-19, moving to a system that inspires self-care and understands sick care should be provided. But if we got there, 
In many cases, it's because we didn't do enough in the intervening time. We have to give people who have heightened risk better access to diagnostics. Not all people are the same. People have a heightened risk of breast cancer, for instance, or diabetes or other conditions need to actually have access to the system. So we've got a lot of work to do. I'm glad that, that the House is looking at a bipartisan bill right. that will forward the conversation. It's only a first step though. Absolutely. You know, there's a reason, Gil, I don't want to uh, put you on the spot, but I want to bring this up to our listeners. There's a reason that you were given a Lifetime Achievement Award as a, as a trailblazer in healthcare, how you've taken the attention of one of the most powerful firms, um, healthcare and public relation communication firms in the world, and you've turned it into uh, these issues and problems. And it's the reason you keep making these lists over and over again is because you really are a voice. And you know, you and I have been on a podcast before where we've said when you're given this kind of responsibility um, in this kind of echo um, ability out into the world, um, it's your responsibility to turn it into something that we can actually solve problems. And I'm so proud to, to be an, an, an associate and a friend of yours because of, of what you've done in your lifetime. I just wanted to say thank you. Well, Todd, thank you for that. I have to credit you and my colleagues at Finn Partners. Um, you know, often an individual is selected for some form of achievement, but, but actually um, this is a, is a composite honor. I'm representative of the spirit and energy of many people, yourself included. You've been in, in the vanguard of, of representing people's health, the, the people you bring onto the program, the quality of the program, your thoughtful questions. The same, obviously, within the Finn Partners community. These are people who are passionate about these issues, and I am really honored. It's a privilege to represent them. I, I want to compliment you and your listeners. You know, the pharmacist is a very proud community, and when we think of all of the innovation that's being created in this nation, as you mentioned, we're in the top, was it four, uh, in terms of um, innovative countries and in health in the world. Um, walk into any neighborhood pharmacy, chain pharmacy, and you will see either in the shelves that are throughout the store or behind the counter, the best, the best that this nation has to offer its citizens. I yearn for, I hope I'm expressing your aspirations. I know I'm expressing my Finn Partners aspirations. I yearn for a time where the hassle to gain access to that innovation will be minimal and that people will feel that they are personally accountable for their longevity, their wellness, their happiness, a life of health. Thank you, Todd, for having me today. You're very welcome. And thank you for being a, a guest on the Pharmacy Podcast. Um, if you'd like to access the information that we talked about today, it's going to be in our show notes. Also, uh, Gil, um, his uh, Twitter handle will also be in the show notes as well as his LinkedIn. Please um, reach out to him. Tell them that you got to listen to the show today and any any feedback that you have. This is so important to us as a as an audio publication. Most of our listeners are pharmacists, are pharmacy technicians. We thank you so much for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Please share this episode with others that you know who are concerned with health care disparities in our nation. Let's do something. 
Let's do something to change this. We can change this together. There's no reason that we can't. I thank you for listening. I thank you for what you do. Thank you for being on the front lines. Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast.